Good afternoon and welcome to the Cato Institute. We're glad to have you all here uh, at this unusual hour, which hopefully will make it uh, more fun to uh, discuss the uh, topic after we're finished in here because we will have wine instead of merely soft drinks and sandwiches, um, which I think is a good idea here as we enter fall and we start to get the rain. Um, my name is David Bowes. I'm the Executive Vice President of the Institute. Glad to have you all here. It's my honor uh, this evening to introduce and moderate our program. Our speaker today, Daniel Hannan, is member of the European Parliament for Southeast England. He became a star, many of you may remember, early last year when Prime Minister Gordon Brown addressed the European Parliament. And after his address, Daniel stood up in the Parliament and responded, concluding with words that can be found all over the Internet now, you cannot spend your way out of recession or borrow your way out of debt. And when you repeat in that wooden and perfunctory way that our situation is better than others, that we are well-placed to weather the storm, I have to tell you, you sound like a Brezhnev-era apparatchik giving the party line. You know... You know, and we know, and you know we know that it's nonsense. The markets have said so, which is why our currency has devalued by 30%, and soon the voters, too, will get their chance to say so. They can see what the markets have already seen, that you are the devalued prime minister of a devalued government. Well, as you might imagine, with a tongue like that, he's become quite controversial in England and Europe. The YouTube clip of that particular moment went viral very quickly, uh, probably finding its strongest audience here in the United States, where we still like people who stand up to British prime ministers. <laughs> Daniel Hannan was born in Lima, Peru, where his parents had a farm. He went to Oxford and became president of the Oxford University Conservative Association. After college, he wrote editorials for the Daily Telegraph and speeches for Conservative Party leaders. He was elected to the European Parliament in 1999 at, I think, just 27 years old. He's been re-elected twice since then, and now he is the author of a new book, The New Road to Serfdom, A Letter of Warning to Americans. The publisher, HarperCollins, announces the book with this ringing endorsement. In World War II, American soldiers went overseas to rescue England from the Nazi menace. Now, with America threatened from within by the specter of social democracy, British politician Daniel Hannan returns the favor. Well, with that resolute endorsement, please welcome, direct from the European Parliament in Brussels, Daniel Hannan. Uh, well, David, thank you for your kind words. And believe me when I tell you that we don't often get that kind of reaction as members of the European Parliament, nor do we get this kind of audience. We're not generally the most popular people in the world, we MEPs. And um, don't, don't feel you've got to rush forward and contradict me when I say that. I've, uh, I've become accustomed to this over the years. But it, it is a great pleasure to be here. And it's a particular pleasure to be here as a newly re-elected uh, representative. There is nothing like an election to remind a politician of the full diversity of wildlife whom he is privileged to represent in his constituency. In the recent election, I, I canvassed a farmer in the Isle of Wight, and he was very pleased to, to meet a member of the European Parliament. And he told me this involved story. 
Uh, he'd purchased a seed bull, a very expensive pedigree animal, and apparently it just wouldn't do the business. He put it with all his heifers, it wouldn't serve any of them. And then on the internet, he had found this wonderful drug, and he stirred it in with the meal, and bingo, the bull couldn't get enough of it, all the heifers were in calf, he was absolutely delighted, and he was very alarmed to hear that the European Union might be about to prescribe this chemical. Well, I said, I'll, of course, I'll look into that for you, sir. What's, what's it called? He said, well, I can't rightly remember its name, but I can tell you that it tastes of aniseed. <laughs> and uh, then I canvassed, um, I canvassed one house in a, in a town called Woking that was answered by a small boy must have been about six years old. He was wearing a great smoking jacket that was kind of hanging loosely from his shoulders. In one hand, he had a balloon of brandy about the, about the size of his little head that he was swirling around, and in the other, smouldering slowly ceilingwards was what smelled like a very expensive Cuban cigar. Well, as you do when you're canvassing, I leaned down and I said, are your parents at home? And he said, does it effing look as though my parents are at home? Um, <laughs> So, now believe me, my friends, there is no one more, more Jeffersonian than I am about democracy. My whole life has been an attempt to uh, apply his doctrines to British political conditions, but I bet you even your third president quite appreciated from time to time being in a room full of people who couldn't vote for him or couldn't vote against him. So it is, it is a huge pleasure, uh, particularly... Uh, to be here at Cato. I said, you know, Cato, the Catos, the Marcus Porcius Catos have played a big part in my life uh, recently because um, I was very inspired by the elder Cato. You, you, you probably know the story about him. He was a senator in the early Roman Republic and he's best known because he got into the habit of ending all of his speeches, whatever the subject, with the phrase, and Carthage must be destroyed, Delenda est Carthago. And the other senators used to mock him. They used to mimic his voice. They used to shout him down, ignore him. But, of course, in the end, they did what he asked. They sacked Carthage. They sowed the fields with salt. And about four years ago, when the European uh, governments cancelled their promise of a referendum on the Constitution, I, inspired by the elder Cato, started doing the same thing. So I, I took advantage of... A, a, a little-known uh, procedure in the European Parliament whereby every member is allowed to speak for up to 60 seconds on the, the subject on which he's just voted. And after every vote, I would talk about whatever it was, Turkish accession, permissible noise of, of, of motors in, in motorbikes, whatever it was, and I would always finish with the phrase, and the Lisbon Treaty must be put to a vote. In Latin, obviously. Pactio olisipiensis, sensendaes, this being, uh, this being Cato the Elder. And I'm afraid I was much less successful than the Roman because uh, no one had a referendum on the Lisbon Treaty. In fact, instead, I, 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 I was shut down. I was told by the president that although what I was doing might be technically within the rules, it was plainly against the spirit of the institution. And so he was uh, presuming to the power arbitrarily not to take points of information from people who he thought were making a frivolous speech, thereby rather uh, confirming the view of this organisation as uh, an arbitrary one. Of course, uh, this institution takes its name indirectly not from that Cato, but from his great-grandson, also Marcus Porcius Cato. And those of you who are uh, regulars at, at Cato will know the story, but forgive me if I briefly recap on it, David, just because it, it, it's germane to what I'm about to talk about this evening. 
long before the Declaration of Independence or the framing of the U.S. Constitution, long before Lexington or Yorktown, long before Jefferson or Madison or Washington was born, uh, two Englishmen were beginning to adumbrate the principles that eventually informed and defined this republic. And in their letters, they set out what we now think of as the ideals of the founding fathers, the idea that decisions should be taken as closely as possible to the people that they affect, that the individual should be as free as possible from state coercion, that office holders should be answerable through the ballot box. Their names were John Trenchard and Thomas Gordon, and they used the, uh, the pseudonym of Cato, the younger Cato, Cato's letters, and it's uh, uh, from that text that this institute takes its name. And it worked. The seeds that they sent over a generation later to this part of the world and that were then scattered in the rich hummus of North America bore fruit as your constitution, your polity, predicated on the principles that they had set out. And that constitution has done exactly what its framers wanted. Well, maybe not exactly, but it has done rather better than any other uh, competitor in the world. It has served to keep the country free, the government under control, uh, it has preserved individual liberty, it's ensured that democracy is, is diffused and dispersed, uh, and it didn't only serve to make this country successful, the promise of that constitution also drove your fathers to carry the promise of freedom to other continents, which is why the world has a stake in the success of this republic. The remarkable thing, when you look as a foreigner, about the, the, uh, the American dispensation is the way in which, if you like, the, the DNA encoded at the old courthouse in Philadelphia, the, the genotype has formed the phenotype that we still recognize. Open primaries, states' rights, the election of public office holders from the school board to the sheriffs, the dispersal of power, referendums, balanced budget procedures, recall mechanisms, all of these things are part of that original Jeffersonian vision, or rather, as we now know, the original Cato the Younger vision of a, a, a republic where power would be diffused. And although, of course, it's imperfect, because man is fallen and perfection is not of this world, it has worked better than any rival. To see how unique your system is, allow me to compare it to what happens in other parts of the world. I can do no better in a way than to compare your constitution with that that we have just adopted in the European Union. Uh, the US constitution is 7,200 words long. I have a copy of it here, published by a Washington Institute. Now, normally at this stage, my party trick is to bring out the European Constitution, but I actually couldn't bring it on the flight. It would, I'd have gone over the weight limit. Uh, ours is 78,000 words long. Yours is mainly concerned with the freedom of the individual. Ours is chiefly concerned with the power of the state. Your Declaration of Independence guarantees your right to life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. 
the EU's equivalent, the Charter of Fundamental Rights and Freedoms, guarantees our right to strike action, free health care, and affordable housing. But the real difference is in how the two documents were ratified. Your constitution came into effect following separate ratification in the 13 member states, or to be strictly accurate, in 11 of the member states with North Carolina and Rhode Island falling into line shortly afterwards. The EU constitution, by contrast, was rejected repeatedly in referendums by 55% of French voters, by 62% of Dutch voters, by 54% of Irish voters, and then imposed anyway. Now, if you think that I am being uh, absurd in drawing a comparison between your constitution and that of uh, an association of states, uh, let me refer you to the author of the European constitution, Valérie Giscard d'Estaing, who made the comparison explicitly at the time. I was there in the drafting convention when he inaugurated it. And he said, this is our Philadelphia moment. And he went on to compare himself to Jefferson. And where, you know, where, where do you begin with criticizing that comparison? Why don't, why don't we start with this? Jefferson wasn't there. <laughs> he, he was, as Giscard might have been expected to know, uh, ambassador to Paris at the time and not present when the Constitution was being drafted. But the real absurdity in the, in the comparison becomes clear when you look at the intention of the two documents. The one is about the dispersal of power the exercise of decision-making at the lowest feasible level. The other is about the centralization of power. The opening line, line one of Article 1 of the EU's foundational treaty, commits the member states to an ever closer union. It's a kind of anti-Jeffersonianism. And from that, uh, that basic design flaw have stemmed almost all the problems that the European Union has suffered since exactly as your third president would have predicted, as he indeed did predict. This is a private letter that Jefferson wrote in 1812. Think of how aptly this applies to the European Union. Our country is too large to have all its affairs directed by a single government. Public servants at such a distance and from under the eye of their constituents must, from the circumstances of distance, be unable to administer and overlook all the details necessary for the good government of the citizens. And the same circumstance, by rendering detection impossible to their constituents, will invite the public agents to corruption, plunder, and waste. Is there a better description of what happens in Brussels and of why it happens in Brussels? If government becomes remote, cut off from the people it purports to speak for, concentrated in the hands of an elite, then inevitably that elite will become self-serving. Well, I'm sure that you can guess where this argument is going. I'm, I'm in Washington for one day. I, I, I was in New York this morning. I'm flying back to London after this meeting. But I found time this morning, uh, as I always do when I visit this town, uh, to go to the Jefferson Memorial. And it's like, it's, it's like that scene in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. I, every time I'm here, I goggle reverently at your third president. And this time, as I stood there, I fancied I heard a clanking noise. Surely... The shade of your third president rattling his chains as he sees what is being done to the republic that he designed. Because exactly this European model is coming. Power is being centralised. 
the idea of the dispersal of power of states' rights is being gradually steamrolled. And instead of the direct election of decision-makers, we have a new uh, functionariat of federal czars. Czars, for heaven's sake! I mean, of all the things, having founded this country, having raised your hands against the Lord's anointed on the basis that you were all free, you, now, you have the, the most authoritarian uh, model possible. And, of course, it is going to serve to make the country less democratic and less free and less prosperous. Here's an amazing statistic. In 1974, the countries of, let's call it old Europe, the 15 member states of the EU, as it stood prior to eastward expansion, to the enlargement of the former Comic-Con states, accounted for 36% of world GDP. Today, they account for 24%, and in 2020, they will account for 15% of the world's wealth. Over that same period, the share of world GDP occupied by the US has remained and will remain pretty steady. 26.3% in 1974, 26.7% projected in 10 years' time. And why is that? Why is it that uh, the European model is serving to depreciate growth and competitiveness? Well, it's precisely because if you take away the pluralism, the diversity, the competition that comes from jurisdictions striving to outdo each other, you are bound to get a less competitive and less productive overall outcome. Put it like this. If you have tax harmonization, hands up who thinks that taxes will be harmonized downwards. Right? And, and there's a reason for that. External competition is the best constraint on a big government, a government wishing to extend its powers. You can raise your taxes up to a certain point and then the money starts flowing into friendlier overseas jurisdictions. But if you can regulate to export your tax levels to everyone else, as is happening in the European Union, then that constraint is removed. You can give your uh, employees the most generous entitlements. You can give them paternity leave and guaranteed vacations up to a certain point before the jobs, the factories, the enterprises start moving abroad. But if you have a way of spreading your costs, then you can get out uh, of that uh, straitjacket. And that, broadly, is the premise of the European Union. And it may, if I'm being very generous, it may arguably have made some sense in the 1950s when the main competition was coming from within one continent. But it makes absolutely no sense in the modern world when capital surges around the globe at the touch of a button and when the internet has eliminated distance. It's as easy for my constituents now to sell to a, a company in the US as it is to sell to a company just across the channel. In fact, it's easier for them to do business in the US because they share a language, they share a common law system, they share commercial practices and accountancy traditions. So the whole superstructure of European regulation supposedly done in the name of guaranteeing a functioning single market, has not only created this corporatist uh, state, but it has failed to guarantee the single market. It would have been better for there have been, to, to have been no government intervention, just to have let uh, businesses talk one to another. Why am I telling you this? Well, bit by bit, the US administration is going down our European road.
If you look at the policies being pursued by your current rulers, they amount to a comprehensive strategy of Europeanization. They are not a series of random initiatives that have been lashed together accidentally. They all trend in the same direction. European healthcare, European welfare, European tax levels, European unemployment rates, of course, inevitably, uh, with that, European carbon taxes, European foreign policy, European disarmament. This is a sustained attempt to change the character of the Republic into something else. And let me tell you, my friends, I know what that something else is. I know better than most people, because I have been working in the European Parliament for 11 years now. I am living in your future. And believe me, you're not going to like it. You know, think of me as that guy in the H.G. Wells story who comes from the future and says, no, no, don't do it, there's still time, turn aside. That's me. Because, yes, of course, in the short term, all sorts of European things are defensible. You know, as I say, paternity leave and long vacations, what's not to like? But in the long term, reality imposes itself. And you can't carry on sustaining this level of uh, what they call the European model, the old mixed uh, capitalist system, in a world when the main competition is coming from China and India. Now, the founders, I think, knew what they were doing when they put Congress in Article 1 of your Constitution before the presidency. And, of course, it's going to be up to you uh, next month to decide whether to carry on in that direction. But be under no uh, illusion about what the eventual destination will be. The U.S., if it carries on down this road, will become less American. And by less American, I mean less prosperous and less independent and less free. It will be more like the rest of the world, which, of course, will be your problem, but it will be our problem too. Why do I come and say these things as a British politician? Why do I come and lord the constitutional model that was born out of a revolt against the British crown? I'm occasionally asked that question in Britain. Why are you trying to Americanize our system? Why do you want the sheriffs and the open primaries and all of these things? And my answer is, well, where do you think that the American founders got their inspiration from? You know, they didn't just dream these things up in a vacuum while, while having tea one morning, because they still drank tea in those days. This was pre-1773. They were drawing on developed English constitutional theory and, more to the point, English constitutional practice. They were developing on the... They were drawing on the, 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 the Cato letters uh, which inspired the building that we're standing in now. The propositions that actuated the original Tea Parties, the 1773 Tea Parties, would have been cheerfully endorsed by the vast majority of people in Great Britain at the time. Taxes should not be raised without popular consent. The executive should be answerable to the legislature. People should be free of confiscatory or uh, arbitrary confiscation. And there should be elected office holders rather than what in those days we called uh, crown placement. Nowadays in Britain we call quangocrats. In other words, uh, appointed uh, but unelected agents of the state. Which brings me to my country's present tragedy. The grievances that were laid against the British crown by your patriot leaders 200 years ago turned out not to be true. Britain didn't develop into an autocracy. It carried on uh, shifting towards 
a democratic system. But they are coming true today. As we have handed power to the European Union and as we have shifted power from elected representatives to unelected functionaries, the fears that actuated the revolutionary leaders are belatedly being realized. How aptly we could apply the phrases from your Declaration of Independence to our current constitutional dispensation. He has erected a multitude of new offices and sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people and eat out their substance. What a perfect description of the growth of bureaucracy in contemporary Europe. He has combined with others to subject us to a jurisdiction foreign to our constitution and unacknowledged by our laws. What a perfect description of the European constitution imposed on us despite all three parties promising us a referendum that they then failed to deliver. So you can imagine, my friends, how I feel as a British patriot brought up in that tradition, seeing in this part of the world liberties thriving that are withering in the ancestral country when I see those same freedoms being abandoned here. It's a bit like you know, there, was those, uh, there were those varieties of, of grape that were exported to California, and then they only survived in California when phylloxera wiped out the ancestral vines in Europe. In a similar way, I look at the institutions of the US, and I think here is one place where British freedoms are surviving in a way that would have been understood by those Homeric figures of the British Parliament in the 18th century. But if you give up on them, then truly the world will be a darker and quieter place. There is still an alternative. We can still create a bond of free peoples dedicated to democracy, to independence, and to the control of our governments. You are extraordinarily fortunate to have a system that puts you in the driving seat. I was asked by a British journalist this afternoon, why is there no British Tea Party? Is it because all these kooky Americans have this peculiar obsession with low taxes? And I said, well, it's because they have open primaries. There was a poll by the World Service, the BBC World Service, on Sunday. In 22 countries, people were asked, should the deficit be closed by higher taxes or by lower spending? In 21 of the 22 countries, people overwhelmingly said, by lower spending. Right? So the US is in line with not just Britain, but Brazil and Pakistan and everyone else. Egypt was the only exception. They were the only ones who wanted more taxes. Now, why then... Is there this peculiar phenomenon here? Because people have not been habituated to being ignored. You still have a political system where the candidates are chosen by the country at large rather than being imposed by party leaderships. And therefore, people still have a belief with all its imperfections that elections matter and that they can change the destiny of the country by casting their ballots. I'm afraid that sense, more than any of the others, is the one that has withered in Europe as a result of European integration and the decaffeination of the voting, the act of voting, the, the disempowerment of our parliaments. If we had open primaries, we'd have all sorts of good ideas coming in in the United Kingdom. But if you give up on them here, if you give up on the, 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 the model which uh, its opponents call populism, but which I think of as democracy, i.e. doing what people want, you know, <laughs> a, a politician reflecting the opinion of his constituents, shock horror, then truly all of us will have lost something. So I'd like to leave time for questions, but let me end 
with a heartfelt imprecation from a British conservative who loves his country to Americans who still believe in theirs. Honour the vision of your founders. Respect the most sublime constitution devised by human intelligence. Never be afraid to speak to and for the soul of this nation, of which, by good fortune and God's grace, you are privileged to be part. Thank you, Daniel. That was great. Uh, We will take questions. Uh, We'll call on you. Please wait for a microphone to come around so that we get you on the tape. Uh, Daniel, you can come back here or you can work from there, whatever. I'll I'll, I'll work from here for now. All right. Question? Right here. Hello, I'm Dick Osborne. Um, I was reading in this morning's uh, Wall Street Journal, perhaps it was uh, yesterday's, one of the inner pages, referring to a a poll, the journal quoting, to the effect that something like 75% of of Americans believe that the current economic doldrums of our country are due to free trade. And something like 80% of the people in our country believe that 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 our our doldrums are due to greed and and corruption in uh, our business leaders. Why do you have such confidence in the the direct uh, influence of, of the people? Thank you. Because every other alternative is worse. Every other alternative amounts to putting the experts in charge. There's a variant of the John Kerry argument. You know, people may not understand the issues. So let's, uh, let's leave people who really know, who really understand, to run things. I've got to say, that has been the justification and the slogan of every dictatorship in history, from Bonaparte onwards. Eleven years I've been in public life, and the single thing that upsets me most is how easy it is when you're on a TV or a radio program as a politician to get a roaring cheer out of the audience by saying about virtually any subject, this is too important to be a political football. Why can't all the parties just get round the table and do what's in the national interest? Why can't we let the professionals get on? <laughs> Let's trust the expert. Well, look, we all, in theory, love the idea of the expert. You know, the the, the disinterested patriot who can raise his eyes above the scrum of the partisan squabbles and descry the true national interest. But I've got to tell you, my friends, no such person exists. We all have our assumptions. We all have our prejudices. The expert, more than anyone, if by expert you mean somebody who spent his entire career in one field, he's the last person that you should trust with invigilating his own career. The whole purpose of elected politics is to remind these people that they work for the rest of us and that they they serve us in the way that we want rather than in the way that they think is best for us. And so with all its imperfections, and there are going to be referendums that you're on the losing side of and that I am, there are going to be elections that go the wrong way. Heaven knows I've seen plenty of those in my own country. But I would rather live in a place where I'm sometimes on the losing side but where ultimately the steward the custodians of the popular uh, wheel other people themselves than in one where somebody else presumes to know what's best. So we'll take another one right here. Yeah. Uh, if we look at the history, no matter which nation, probably every couple of hundreds of years then ago, a revolution... And America now is uh, for the 200 years or so need another revolution. And but I think the most important thing is uh, not only the people 
have to be hired by some bureaucratic people and who are basically corrupt, and so the whole thing is corrupt together. So I just wonder, in Europe or even here in the United States, what method or approach or what movement you would like to lead so we can go back to restore our law and order and moral value? Mm. Or we can have a good, really restore a good essence of democracy and a good essence of fair trade. Because what we have now is uh, capitalism is really lost all its essence. There's no free trade, and there's, basically it's, you know, the CEO get a bonus and then ask the taxpayer to bail out. Sure. So as I say the other day, it's basically rubberism, so we had to change this around. Well, the, I mean, the, the point about the bailouts, um, in a way, vindicates what I was saying in answer to Dick a, a second ago. Um, all the political parties in my country and in this one, within hours of the bank crash had formed a consensus around a policy written by bankers. And surprisingly, uh, the bankers thought that everyone else should pay for the banks. And I remember it was very lonely being against it. I can see Fred Smith nodding because he was against it as well. Uh, I was one of the the only uh, British politicians at the time to oppose the bailouts. Lots of people have opposed them since, uh, with hindsight. And I remember getting an email from a very senior member of my party saying, you are absolutely on your own on this, Hannon. There's you and Ron Paul. Uh, and, um, and a couple of weeks later, when the first opinion poll came out, I was able delightedly to, to, and rather smugly to email him back saying, look, it turned out to be me, Ron Paul, and 86% of the British electorate. Um, people are, as a rule, wiser than their rulers. Now, about your point on corruption, look, here's a statistic that is going to really, really shock you. Not for the first time, as I listened to you, I, I thought I would gladly swap Europe's problems for America's. Uh, the last audit of the EU budget found that you could account definitively for only 9% of total spending. 9%, right? That's not, not to say that the rest was all being stolen. It's just that nobody knew, right? Now, imagine, imagine that there were the, the auditors of the Cato Institute were to come along, and the, the treasurer were to say, well, 9%, I'm not, I'm not saying that all the rest has been stolen, but I can only for certain say that I know where 9% of our money has gone. I mean, would you, you know, would you reappoint your treasurer? <laughs> and yet, this is... We're like double, now, now, why? <laughs> well, that's, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. So, well, we need you in the European Union then. Uh, but, why, you know, why does this happen? Is it because uh, US legislators are more virtuous than European ones? No, of course not. It's because there are stronger mechanisms to hold them to account. The European Commission is not just... uh, You'll often hear people saying it's undemocratic in the sense that none of its members is elected, but it's worse than that. Uniquely in the Western uh, world, we have contrived to come up with a system that is anti-democratic in the sense that you generally have to have lost an election before you are appointed to it. If I look at the the British commissioners we've had, Peter Mandelson, Neil Kinnock, they, they, they had been expressly rejected by their voters before being given this uh, appointed position at the commission. And so is it any wonder that in such a system you will have less uh, care, less attention to the use of taxpayers' money than you will in a system where people are answerable? Milton Friedman made the point that, well, it's slightly more complicated, but to summarise, he made the point that there's two kinds of money in the world. There's your money and there's my money. And we are much more careful with the second than we are with the first. Well, 
In Brussels, it's all your money. And there is no link between taxation and representation and expenditure. And that's why you have a system that is terribly corrupt. And that's why I would warn you against this tendency to, you know, an extended White House, federal czars ruled by executive decree, all of those things widen the gap between government and governed in a way that is bound to lead to a more powerful, more corrupt, and less accountable administration. Right here. Hi, I'm Sam Kasman, Competitive Enterprise Institute. There's this joke that uh, there will always be an America, it just might not be here. Uh, and I'm not sure whether that's too optimistic or too pessimistic, but if you did have to pin your hopes on someplace other than the U.S., uh, where would it be? I'm not sure I accept the premise, and let me tell you why. The U.S. is unique. It's different from other countries in, in one obvious sense. Most people chose to come here, or at least their relatively recent ancestors chose to come here. They were making a conscious, deliberate decision to leave behind one way of life and adopt another. Now, that is very... I mean, that's, in, that's a, that sounds trite. It's, a, it's a, a statement of the obvious. It's banal. But think about the consequences. Almost every other nation is defined by ethnicity, language, religion, territory. What makes you Swedish? What makes you Ethiopian? What makes you Japanese? It comes down to blood and soil. It's where you are. It's who your people are. Okay? Now, the U.S. is different. It was a set of ideals. It was a codification of a political philosophy that was open to anybody, wherever they came from, as long as they bought into it. And so to, to distance yourself from those ideals, to contradict the vision is in a way distancing yourself from the country in a way that isn't possible in other places. So the Swede, the Ethiopian, the Japanese, he might, his country might be a monarchy or a republic, it might, be, it might have a state church or it might be atheist, it might be socialist or capitalist, but it would still recognizably be the same country. But if this country ceased to be guided by the principles of the Constitution, then it would cease to be American. And that, I think, would be a loss for everybody. Now, Jefferson made a very um, a, 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 a boastful comment that came extraordinarily true. He said, there's going to be a great flow of migrants across the Atlantic, and there's not going to be much of a reverse flow. And that, of course, was much truer than he could have possibly realized at the time. But why did he think that was going to happen? He didn't think that there was some magical quality in American soil or American air or the American gene pool. He did slightly eccentrically think that it was never cloudy here. He'd obviously never been to Washington on a day like this. Uh, or perhaps it was radical climate change. I don't know. But, but his, his essential proposition was anyone who buys into these ideals, who replicates this model of republicanism, can enjoy the same happy system that we have. And that's true. So yes, there'll be an America here. And I hope that as other countries uh, replicate, or in our case, repatriate those ideals, they can... Uh, take their full place in the share of freedom and prosperity. Right here. I'm Randy Barnett from Georgetown Law School. Uh, first of all, Daniel, thanks very much. And I should tell you that among the biggest, I teach constitutional law at Georgetown Law, and amongst the biggest culprits 
uh, behind the abolition or the abandonment of the U.S. Constitution are constitutional law professors themselves, either because when in this country they advocate that the Supreme Court doesn't follow the Constitution in one clever way or another, or overseas when asked their opinion uh, by you know, fledgling nations what sort of government they should pick. They always recommend parliamentary democracy. They never recommend our system of government to others. So if you want to know some of the culprits on this side, they're in my profession. I wanted to ask you, um, given we, we, many of us who follow the situation in Great Britain realize that there are severe problems with the Tory party. Um, but I'm wondering, there's also comparable problems with the Republican Party in the United States, and that's being challenged now from the bottom up. Uh, so there's a possibility of reform within at least one of the American parties. And I'm wondering if you could just give us your assessment of Great Britain's politics and whether there's any prognosis or any reason for optimism that somehow one or both or three of the parties uh, might move in a positive direction, either to shed themselves of their European obligations or at least to restore some of their own parliamentary rights that they themselves have uh, weakened in the last few decades. We have a parallel problem, the two right-of-center parties. Um, uh, The biggest negative we have, uh, even now, is that we are seen as a party of the elites, a party of the rich, a party that's out of touch. And for a long time, this was also the cross borne by the Republicans. You go back to the middle years of the 20th century, it looked like a permanent liberal ascendancy. Uh, The Democrats were in a uh, semi-permanent majority in both houses, and the Republicans, although they occasionally did win the White House, it was usually by fielding a sort of Eisenhower bipartisan type of figure. What happened between then and the end of the 20th century to take the party to power? Well, a fascinating uh, study was written by the current editor of The Economist when he was, before he became editor, in a book called The Right Nation. And he traced the evolution of the GOP from a northeastern preppy country club party that kept losing into a sunbelt, angry, more populist, more ideological party that kept winning. And the single biggest, I don't want to oversimplify, but the single biggest factor in that transformation was the party's alignment with the cause of states' rights, decentralization of power. In other words, that they were on the side of the majority against the Washington elites, particularly, obviously, on the issue of busing school children, but it then evolved into a much wider issue of being a party that believed in maximum decentralization. Well, again, I'm sure you can see where this is going. Latterly, the last Republican administration started retreating from that. Uh, that vision. It became the party of external protectionism and steel tariffs. It became the party of uh, uh, of striking down states' rights on issues from euthanasia to same-sex unions, uh, a party of massive federal spending, and then in the end a party of bailouts and nationalizations. Surprise, surprise, it lost again. We had the same, exactly the same story. Our Traditional elites in the Tory party, I mean, they were perfectly nice people, the so-called wets. They were, uh, you know, they were good, patriotic people driven by genuine service, but they couldn't win. They, their, 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 their pessimistic Tory creed was incapable of commanding a majority, and Thatcher came along as a different kind of leader, Methodist, provincial, daughter of a grocer, and spoke to people in a way that convinced them that she was on their side against the, the permanent a- apparatus of the state. When we do that, we win. And when we don't, we lose. Can I, can I tell you my, my favorite story? A couple of you will have heard this before. But uh, a year ago, I found myself addressing 
the Republican committee of a rural county in the Deep South. And I was asked the question that has just come up, you know, why, why, what, what do the Republicans do to win again? And so I, I gave the same answer, you know, abandonment of localism. And when I got on to striking down laws on same-sex unions, there was this kind of growl that went through the room, and I thought, oh, no, this wasn't the right example to give to the Republican committee of a southern uh, county. And sure enough, at the end, an enormous man with a great beard came up to me, and he said, Cern, I appreciate you coming. And <clears throat> forgive me, um, <laughs> forgive me the, the, the travesty of, uh, of an accent here, but you'll see in a second that the story depends on building ambience. He said... Um, He said, I agree with most of what you said, but I must vehemently disagree with your position on so-called homosexual unions. I thought, yeah, here we go. He said, I got to tell you from my perspective that not being under any pressure to get mad is one of the main advantages I enjoy as a gay man. (laughs) And, And I thought, truly this is an extraordinary country. Every time you think you've understood it, it surprises you. It's hard to follow that, but if I could go back to Randy's question and follow up on that, I have had the impression that the conservative liberal coalition in Britain kind of seems to be adopting the best ideas from each of the two parties instead of the normal pattern of taking the worst of two parties that go into coalition. Yes, and it's done, it's done so much more than anyone you know, anyone in this room, as it were, if you were British, would, would have expected. Um, it is serious about deficit reduction, and it, it's talking about imposing cuts of between 25 and 40% on every department, except Europe. Our contributions to the EU will grow by 60%, soaking up quite a lot of the savings. Uh, it's talking about shifting people, seriously talking about shifting people off welfare and into work, and they've, they've put a lot of thought into how to do that. Um, there's a sort of free schools policy, parental control, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and best of all, there is a policy of democratization and localism. Recall mechanisms, fewer members of parliament, uh, a referendum or citizens' initiative procedure, and even some open primaries, which is, is going to be the single best guarantor of an independent and responsive legislature. The only problem... The only area where I really disagree with them is on Europe, because there is a contradiction between a policy at home of decentralizing power and then a policy in Brussels of centralizing it. There is a contradiction between being against what we call the quangos, the the unelected agencies, and then submitting Britain to the biggest quango of the lot, namely the European Commission. And it is very difficult to say decisions should be taken as closely as possible to the people when we know that 80% of them are being taken in Brussels. Right here. And then take a microphone to the woman just behind the railing. Hi, uh, Michael Willey, Georgetown University. Uh, Thank you so much for coming. Um, I appreciate all your remarks. And once you are done saving Europe, would you mind coming to America, becoming a citizen, and getting elected (laughs) to a a state here? Um, I mean, you'll have gathered that I'm quite a a strict interpretationist about your constitution. So um, I'm I'm generally against foreigners muscling in. but, you know, there is, a, uh, there is a, a, an unconditionality about patriotism. And although, as you will have gathered, I think that there are lots of ways in which my country is being misgoverned, it would not occur to me to desert it simply because I could find somewhere that was more congenial. Rather, I want to repatriate our revolution and to bring back 
the ideas that our fathers would have taken for granted, which we exported successfully to you, but which, we, which we've now turned our backs on at home. Right there. Hi, this is, oh, this is such a pleasure. Uh, I wanted to ask, uh, we're often told that in order to regain our reputation abroad, we have to elect administrations like our current one, um, an opinion which was recently echoed by Piers Morgan on taking over the Larry King seat. Uh, is that true? Have you noticed that abroad, and is that even the right thing for us to do? It's a, it's a very timely question. There was an enormous survey of public opinion last year in all different countries, and it found that although Barack Obama is personally fairly popular, his victory has made absolutely no impact on the questions of do you, do you have a positive or negative view of the US. Let me read you. Uh, this is the headlines that appeared in Der Spiegel in the first six months after his election. From mania to distrust, Europe's Obama euphoria wanes. Torturing for America. American gays and lesbians feel betrayed by Obama. GM insolvency proves America's global power is waning. American recession food, the fat crisis. That last one is about people eating too many McDonald's because of the, the capitalist system here. What you find is that the uh, anti-Americanism, which is a, is a real force, is, is an ideological thing. Right? The reason it exists is for the reason that I, I gave... Uh, earlier about how this country actualizes an ideal. It isn't just a territory. It is the realization of an archetype. And therefore, people tend to take up positions for or against it. You don't often hear about anti-Columbianism. But anti-Americanism is the creed of those who dislike the principles built into the bricks of the republic, choice, freedom, uh, dispersed democracy, and so on. And those people don't have a quarrel with one particular president or one particular administration. It's the whole package that they don't like. The free elections, the unrestricted capitalism, the inequality of outcomes, uh, uh, the, the, what they would call, if you flip all those things around, the crassness, the vulgarity, by which they mean freedom of choice, people not having to follow the same uh, lives that their parents had. And so you can't appease them just by uh, cap and trade or abolishing the death penalty or whatever it is, because th that... That isn't the, the cause of their resentment in the first place. The way, rather, uh, to overcome the problem is to outperform them. I'm going to do something I re rarely do, which is to quote the West Wing approvingly, but there's a great line where Toby says, they'll like us when we win. That was certainly my country's experience. We have a situation now in the United Kingdom where British-born boys, sons of immigrants who were born in our country, have been so alienated from it that they're prepared to cross half the world to take up arms against our soldiers. We had two uh, boys who went to Gaza as suicide bombers. Right? Now, you'd have thought that their grandfathers or their great-grandfathers had much more cause to resent us. We had, after all, invaded and occupied their countries. But in those days, it was still a brand worth buying into. We projected an optimism that made it easy for people to want to belong. Thou must eat the white queen's meat and all her foes are thine, says Kipling's border chieftain to his son. Now compare that to the experience of the boy growing up in the inner cities now where the only institution, the only interactions he's had with the British state have taught him to despise it. The only history he's got has been presented to him as a sort of hateful chronicle of, of racism and exploitation. Is it any wonder that he finds it hard to belong? The way of being popular is to be confident, to be positive, to be optimistic. It's actually what the president said on the night he was elected. He said, our, our authority doesn't rest on might of arms, but in our 
example, in our moral example, in our unyielding hope, to use the phrase he's so fond of. Well, great, great. I hope he remembers that, because that's the way of winning over your critics. Okay, I'm going to take a question here, and then one all the way in the back, and then we'll wrap things up. Go ahead and take the mic up to the back row. <clears throat> Fred Smith, very quiet for me today. Um, this is a, an interesting, you've raised a lot of interesting questions. In one sense, of course, you notice the anti-Americanism in Europe. Well, of course, intellectuals are anti-American in America, too. There's a tremendous challenge. The intellectual class interests will be against freedom. The only, and of course, we're the, we're the traitors to our class, but there is a, another class, the entrepreneurial business class, who around the world has an advantage in expanded liberalization. Now, we know crony capitalism and all the games of the side, but entrepreneurship requires that element of liberty. Why have we been so unable to form alliances between those of us in the intellectual class who believe in freedom and the entrepreneurial class who has an economic interest. We have failed dramatically in the United States, and I don't think we've really succeeded anywhere in the world. Mm. I mean, you know more about this than almost anyone, having spent years trying to forge such an alliance and having probably got closer than, than most of us. I wonder whether it doesn't have to do, as so often, with the personal incentives, the kind of the, the free economics view of human motivation, or the, the, the Actonian view, to put it more uh, portentously. Um, an entrepreneur, when he becomes successful, to the extent that he is in a position to be pestered by a think tank head for donations, is no longer primarily interested in the getting of resources. He's now reached a higher plane where he is thinking of the uh, honours and, uh, 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 and baubles that will be bestowed on him if he displays the right social attitudes. Now, he may be a man of great principle who's immune to all that, but I've been struck by how many people who were successful and brilliant entrepreneurs morph after a certain stage into, as it were, almost people running a nationalised industry. Uh, who enjoy hobnobbing with ministers in, in, in backroom deals and uh, corporate social responsibility and uh, having their wife praise them for doing all the right things and their children telling them that you know they're, they're doing their bit to fight climate change and so on. And that is, that's the zen of, uh, of business. It's very difficult to retain the enthusiasm of the, of the actual wealth creators. Last question. Uh, Marion Tupicato Institute, um, I would like to um, have you reflect on maybe the long-term relationship between the United States and the European Union. Assuming that the EU continues along the current path and uh, it does uh, become an ever-closer union, uh, in a world where uh, there really is no agreement in the EU on... Uh, common economics, common politics, common uh, uh, cultural principles. Could anti-Americanism provide a uni unifying uh, bond? Could, uh, could Europe uh, become, uh, could, could uh, the alternative to the United States, the European social democratic model, be uh, the bind that binds the, the EU together and, and present an alternative to the, to the US? Thanks. That is, of course, precisely the motivation of some of the people involved. I mean, very explicitly. Um, it started almost the moment that the Cold War finished, and it dawned on European leaders that they no longer needed the security guarantee. And it was, I mean, maybe it had been there below the surface for a long time up until then, but it only started becoming overt round about 1990. I remember traveling through France when they were having their 
referendum on the Maastricht Treaty, the first of many European treaties to be rejected at the ballot box and then uh, imposed anyway. And the official poster of the socialist government urging a yes vote, the f- so this wasn't some fringe group, this was the, 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 the Mitterrand's government, had, it was like a, a picture of a kind of uh, caricatured Texan in a Stetson hat, squashing the globe under, his, under the heel of his cowboy boot. Uh, and, the, and the slogan was, faire l'Europe, c'est faire le poids. Building Europe gives us weight. And that, you know, I say that simply to say there was no, uh, no clandestine side to this. That was the, uh, the, the argument. Now, I think it's fair to say that that line of argument has limited resonance in the more uh, Atlantic, more northern, more outward-looking countries. Um, so you can get... Uh, uh, you know, you, there's, a, there's an anti-American constituency in France, in Spain, in, in Greece. There's very little anti-American constituency in, in uh, Denmark or in the Netherlands or in, in Britain, particularly not in Britain. Um, I suspect that there will eventually be a bifurcation in Europe, that the old federalist countries, the kind of core founder members, the Carolingian countries, will eventually go ahead and do what they always wanted, which was to create a full political state. I mean, they're very nearly there. Two weeks ago, they very nearly won a vote in the UN for recognition as a state. I mean, full membership as a, as a, as a state so that Van Rompuy could have addressed the General Assembly and so on. They have all of the trappings and attributes that we traditionally associate with statehood. They have their passport, their driving license, their national anthem, their flag, their parliament, their currency, their legal system, and so on. But I don't think that Britain will be part of that. It's, it's completely alien to our tradition. It's completely against public opinion. Every opinion poll shows that we would vote to leave the European Union tomorrow if we had a referendum. Which brings me back, I'll finish on this, with, uh, to, 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 to the, the, the very first question. It's why the people, by and large, are right. It doesn't mean they're right every time, but why you should trust them more than their leaders. My favourite quotation of, in the whole canon of Edmund Burke, whose picture han- uh, hangs outside, is where he describes this phenomenon of people being wiser than the chattering classes. And he says, Because half a dozen grasshoppers, concealed beneath the fern, make the field ring with their importunate chink, while thousands of great cattle take their repose beneath the shade of the British oak and are silent, pray do not imagine that those who make all the noise are the only inhabitants of the field. Thank you, Daniel. It's been great having you here. I hope you will come back. Uh, Let's all adjourn upstairs for a glass of wine now and pick up a copy of the book, and I'm sure you can get it signed. Thanks for coming.